In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come this morning, time of the day, dedicated to our Blessed Mother, with gratitude in our heart for the gifts that you have given to us. We rejoice in the gifts that await us still. We pray that you would open our hearts. Help us to, as we come to this morning, uh, to this to this talk, this presentation, to open our hearts to the riches of the Holy Mass, to recognize the, the incredible blessing that you have given to us in being able to draw so close to this, this font of grace. Help us to rejoice in it this day, to open our hearts even more to all that you have, not only in, in learning about it, but in the experiencing of that great celebration. And we ask that through the intercession of our Blessed Mother that we may continue always to draw close to the heart of her Son as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Before we begin, if there was a book over there on the table and you took it, please give it back to me. Those are my books. Uh, um, I brought them here for, for, uh, for resources, uh, as well as there's a little resource, uh, a little resource paper there. Uh, so to give you a list of things uh, that are kind of good starting points or good deep dives into some of the things we're talking about here today. And I wanted to, to put them on the table so you could see them, so you can kind of page through, look at the table of contents, that kind of stuff right off the bat. Also, uh, there are oftentimes questions of what kind of hand missile should I get? You know, if we're, we're going to buy a missile or if you have one that's been passed down to you from, from your mom or grandma or whoever, whoever, if you found it at the bookstore, um, you know, can I use this type of question sometimes? Uh, and so I've got, I've got a handful of, of missiles that are over there. Uh, two of them are gone. Uh, so <laughs> there's that. Um, yeah. Bring those back when you're done. Flay page it through them. That's fine. It's fine. I didn't. I wasn't too clear on that. Uh, usually, when I put books out, everyone's like, "Cool, we'll take them." I did not mean to give them away just yet. Uh, so, uh, so feel free to look through some of those missiles as well. Uh, so I have the the Angelus Press missile, the Baronius Press missile, um, the the Father Stedman missile, and a couple of the Saint Joseph missiles. The uh, the good old classic Saint Joseph missiles. Uh, so you can kind of page through those and look a little bit and see uh, if one speaks to you more, if one seems more kind of what you're looking for in particular. So we're here for this TLM 101, Traditional Latin Mass 101, a sort of uh, starting point discussion. Uh, I know there are some of you who have been going to the Latin Mass for decades, some of you who have been going to the Latin Mass for years, some of you haven't been to the Latin Mass yet, but maybe you heard about this talk, you've been hearing about it in the internet, and you just wanted to come maybe and show up and see what's what. Uh, and so uh, I'll try to hit uh, a little bit for everybody. And um, if I start speaking in, in liturgical lingo or things that does not make sense, feel free to go, what's that? And, and we can kind of clarify a bit. But just kind of as a starting point, uh, names. The traditional Latin mass has a variety of names. Uh, recently, it's been referred to commonly as the extraordinary form. Uh, it is known frequently as the usus antiquior, the, the more ancient use, the older use. Uh, the Missal of John the 23rd, 
or, yeah, John the 23rd, uh, the Missal of 1962, sometimes referred to as the Mass of the Ages, the Tridentine Mass, the Mass of Pius V, a whole variety of things, and there are probably others that I'm missing that somebody else called it, and I just haven't put it down yet. It's a whole variety of names, but they all refer to a single, uh, a single common thing, which is the Mass as, as we have it here, this great gift of the traditional Latin Mass, the, the Mass that's uh, essentially kind of the, the pre-Vatican II Mass uh, and its predecessors in their various editions down through the centuries. So when I speak of the traditional Latin Mass, I'm specifically speaking today of uh, particularly of our current use of it, which is the 1962 Missal. Uh, so it's the, the 1962 is the most recent edition uh, of the, the traditional Latin liturgy, if you will. Uh, and there are debates about that because some say, no, it would be the, the pre-1955 Missal because in 55 they changed Holy Week. So some people don't like that. So, you know, they, they want to they say the last, the last real one is pre-55. I'm not getting into that debate. We can have that debate later on, fine and good. Um, but I'm going with the liturgical books we have in force, the 1962 Missal which is what we use here for the celebration of the sacred liturgy. So how do we get this thing? It's, uh, we know just as the Bible didn't just kind of fall down from heaven with a little title and a little, a little sticky note from God that says, you're welcome, my children, here's the word, right? That, that the Bible was composed over centuries by individuals and they were collected and the, and the, the community saw them as, as inspired by God and they continued to, to pull them together and eventually way down the line, Mother Church said, this is the canon, this is the book of sacred scripture, right? So a similar thing, of course, happens with regards to the sacred liturgy. Making sure that I'm recording there. All right. So a similar thing happens with the sacred liturgy. So in the beginning, the missile didn't fall from the sky. It's not as if at the Last Supper, our Lord was like, this is my body, this is my blood, here's the missile. Follow it, right? Um, that would have been awesome to have the Lord's... The, the, the mass the Lord wanted, and he just gave it to us. Because, I mean, what a, what a thing to be able to put on a billboard. The mass of Jesus, right? We have it, you don't, right? So, a pretty good selling point. As much as that would have been awesome, that's not, not exactly the case. Uh, it came down through us, through, through the church, right? And so we know in the early church, there were, there were the church fathers, uh, and they, they have accounts uh, where we know of St. Justin, Justin Martyr, uh, has in, the, in the, the early part of the second century uh, in, his, in his apologia, his defense of the Christian faith, he says, this is what we do on the day of the sun, Sunday, the Lord's Day, right? And he goes down, he lays out exactly what happens during the course of the liturgy. Um, and then, uh, I don't know if it was him or if it was elsewhere, but it, it mentions the fact that the priest prays the prayer over the gifts according to his ability. Ooh. <laughs> Sometimes you got a really deep and profound prayer, and sometimes you're like, man, this guy's not super creative, and he's really, really kind of struggling up there to come up with his prayers. Ooh, all right? So Mother Church in her wisdom recognized you don't want to just rely upon the, on the priest himself to be able to, to, to hope that he can make up a good prayer that Sunday, right? He, if he's having an off day, if he's got a headache, if he's distracted by things happening around him, you don't want him kind of just shooting from the hip and probably spouting off some kind of heresy, which is usually what happens, right? <laughs> so they started to, to collect these little books. These, they called them libelli, right, little books. Um, and so there were these, these little books where they would, uh, for each particular area, they would gather up and they would have 
This is, this is the canon, right? The Eucharistic prayer. This is the Eucharistic prayer. Pray this. At different places, they would also have maybe another little book that would have uh, the readings that they would say. You, know, you read from Ezekiel uh, this day, and then you read this reading from the Gospel of Luke. Okay, good. On this feast day, these are the readings we read, right? And so they would have these little, these little guides that would be according to the, to the local community. And oftentimes, you know, as all of us do, because we are social beings, when you find somebody that has something you don't, you say, can I get a copy of that? And so it starts to spread, right? And so this eventually happens uh, kind of an, on large scale. Uh, but it happens, uh, for us it seems rather late. Uh, but in fact, it's, it's a, a pretty early thing uh, given, given the situation of the world. So we have these little labelli, these little books uh, that were being, being gathered up in each local church. But then at one point, uh, the Holy Father uh, decided to compile, uh, to compile these and to compile the prayers of the Mass, to put the canon in a single book, and to, to kind of go through, here's how to do the sacred liturgy in the Roman Rite. And that happened uh, under Pope Leo in the 5th century. He was, he was a holy father from the 440s, uh, from 440 to 461. So it was under Pope Leo that we have the first sacramentary, right? The first book of the prayers for the mass. Um, now that seems like it's pretty late, right? It's 400 years after the life of our Lord. But remember, 300 of those 400 years, we were under persecution. So the fact that within 100 years of the church's legalization, if you will, We've got a full formal book of the things of this is what we do, and everyone knows it, right? Each place would have a copy. That of course, they'd have to handwrite it at the time, but each, each place, little by little, they were making these copies and disseminating them throughout the Roman Empire to these various churches. And there was a, a, a sort of, there was a common experience of the liturgy, and, and, and it wasn't a new thing. It's not as if he was issuing something that was entirely new. All these places had the same little books. He just put them all together in a single large book and, and, and sent that out. Rather than, rather than copying little ones where people may or may not have this one, he sent the whole thing. And so this was uh, in the 400s, in the, in the mid-400s. We have uh, another one that's known that's, uh, shortly thereafter, Pope Gelasius. Um, so we have the Gelasian Sacramentary. So a few decades later, at the end of the 5th century, we have Pope Gelasius uh, issuing another sacramentary, kind of updating things a little bit, and a few more, more texts being gathered. We have in the, uh, in the, 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 sixth, the late 6th, early 7th century, uh, Pope St. Gregory, uh, Gregory the Great, uh, who issued the, the Gregorian Sacramentary. Uh, so Leo and Gelasius... Uh, both issued sacramentaries. It's not sure how much they themselves actually composed to put into it, uh, but there was there's definitely more information that, that St. Gregory composed some of the prayers, inserted some things, you know, was, was kind of taking a more active approach on what do we do in the liturgy. So Pope Gregory uh, is the last one. So those are the, the three most ancient missiles that we have. Uh, as far as the as, as far as the liturgy is concerned, those uh, the big book on the altar with the with the readings and the prayers, uh, these are the the three most ancient that we possess, and we still have copies of uh, copies of them. Um, they're not um, they're not the they're not the original originals, uh, right? So the oldest copy we have 
from the, from the Leonine, which was in the 5th century, is a 7th century uh, copy manuscript of it. Uh, but we have texts in the early church that all point to it. Right? They're all writing about it, so we know it existed, we know it was there, we know it was widely disseminated. So we have these, these sacramentaries that are given, um, and it has the Roman canon, right? the Eucharistic prayer. Uh, it has the readings for the Mass, it has the prayers for the Mass, it has the calendar for the year. They're starting to, to have the saints, the saints' feast days, right? all of these things that we have currently. They were already present there, right? And so over the centuries, saints that didn't exist before, who started to exist, right? So at some point, they canonized St. Gregory, and he found himself in the Missal, right? <laughs> he didn't put himself there in the first place. I would be presumptuous. But at some point, they canonized him and slid him in there, right? And so over the centuries, we have this development. It's, you know, just as when you plant a tree, it starts off, you know, it starts off kind of small and over time it grows and it you know becomes you know great branches and a nice sturdy you know sturdy trunk and deep roots and all these kinds of things so also with the sacred liturgy is uh, is it grew over time um, developing in the richness of the celebration of the feasts uh, becoming more pic- more particular with regards to readings with regards to prayers with little little tweaks here and there uh, along the way uh, but largely the same uh, saint gregory the great could walk into Mass uh, for the traditional Latin Mass today and look at things and go, huh, that's a little different, but, but this makes sense. Like He would recognize exactly kind of what was in front of him um, as Mass. Like he would understand it in that sense. There were a whole variety of other things uh, in, vid- in various places. They would do have different, uh, different small observances. <coughs> and so um, basically it was, it was such that um, each kind of diocese was able to, to have its own kind of liturgical um, distinctness to some degree. And that's still the case. Every diocese can have their own particular liturgical feasts. We can have particular liturgical kind of observances in the celebration of the Mass. That's still a, a thing that's always existed in the church. Um, but what, what often was the case is you would go, you would go to, to one place and they would, they would have a... Um, the entrance procession would be something to the effect of you would, uh, right? The, the priest would the priest would walk in, and he would go in, uh, and he would he would genuflect to the blessed sacrament. He would ascend, you know, he would ascend the altar. He'd kiss the altar stone. He would kiss the crucifix, and he would reverence the relics with a bow, you know. In another place, he would go in, do the same, do the same kind of getting up to the altar, he would reverence the crucifix and then reverence the relics and then he would reverence the altar and then he would begin. And so there were, there were these little things, you know, they weren't always the same. You know, some places they reverence the relics, some place not, some place they kiss the crucifix, some place not. They always kiss the altar stone, of course. Uh, but there was, uh, again, these little tweaks here and there where there was uh, kind of a small thing that was not exactly the same. Also, you have religious orders uh, like the, the Dominicans, uh, who in their confidior, in, their, in the I confess at their mass, they also add in Dominic. So they confess to our Blessed Mother, to St. Joseph, uh, to the Apostles Peter and Paul, to St. Dominic, and all, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, these, these kind of particularities that are present there uh, are, are um, kind of unique in different places. Uh, and so uh, in some places you'll have the the priest will wear the beretta like I wear at mass and the religious orders, they'll wear a hood instead. Uh, and so just kind of little, little tweaks here and there. For the most part, that's perfectly acceptable. But 
it was it was in the midst of, uh, of the the Council of Trent uh, when when Pope Pius V uh, decided that it was desirable in, in the response of in response to the Protestant revolt to be able to to turn back uh, and to be able to have a, a kind of unified a unified front a unified experience of the faith uh, throughout throughout Catholicism throughout at least Roman Catholicism uh, and so. He basically they gathered they gathered together, kind of talked about all the all the little tweaks and changes, all the little things that each individual place does, and came up with a general a general guidebook, right? The Roman Missal. It, was, it wasn't a new thing. It wasn't a reproduction. It wasn't a we're going to make a new thing and give it to you. It was taking things that were already there and kind of saying, okay, this is this is a standard form. And also, if you've been if you've been around, if you've been doing what you've been doing for two hundred years or more. Don't feel like you have to adopt this, all right? And so there was kind of a, a recognition if, if you've got, got roots that are deep, don't feel like you have to uproot yourself and change, all right? So we're offering this missile for those who are less than, less than 200 years um, in, in the life of the church. Uh, but if you want to take it, you're welcome to. Here it is. Here's the missile of Pius V. And so it essentially, it, it kind of universalized those, those little rubrics, those little observances of, of the order in which you do things, whether you kiss the crucifix or not, whether you reverence the relics or not, and in what manner. So it kind of just cleaned up some of those things so that a priest could go from this church to this church to this church, and it would be fairly similar. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get up there and the altar boy going, you missed the relics, right? <laughs> right? So it's, it's a reality. Huh? And so... We have the, the Missal of, of Pius V um, that, is, that is given to us. And then that comes down to us uh, as the, the Tridentine Mass, right? So Trent, Tridentine. Um, and so we have that that has come down to us. Again, Holy Week was arised uh, with 1955. And then so 1962, uh, Pope John XXIII, St. John XXIII, uh, revised some of the rubrics and made a few, a few tweaks here and there uh, as far as the observance of calendar dates because uh, it was a rather, sometimes a rather complex thing to try to figure out what kind of feast you were celebrating, whether it was a double of the first class or a double of the second class or a single of the first class of the second order of the double. Um, and so there were lots of double single things, and it was just kind of really confusing, somewhat unnecessarily, but there was a, there was a method to it. And it's, again, a whole different discussion in the weeds somewhere off there. Um, but so John the Twenty Third kind of cleaned that up, kind of, you know, simplified some of the rubrics, simplified some of the calendar, the rankings of feasts and this kind of thing. Uh, and so that's what we have as a 1962 missal uh, from, from him. And then again, that's what we celebrate here on the altar. All this is to say that the missal that we celebrate, the, the traditional Latin Mass as it stands today, is essentially recognizable and the same as what we've been celebrating since the middle of the 5th century uh, in books. And knowing that it was, it was that way beforehand... In, in the little, the labelli, the little books, uh, as well as just priests giving to one another those words, learning, learning the words, learning the prayers. Uh, and so what we celebrate here is essentially the same in its ritual as, uh, as what St. Gregory celebrated uh, at Holy Mass. Gregory is around 1,000? Gregory is uh, 600. 600? Mm-hmm. So, all right. A few things for us to remember. 
with regards to the traditional Latin mass um, and the ecosystem, if you will, within which it lives, versus the, the Novus Ordo, uh, the, the Mass of Paul VI, uh, everything is different. It's important to remember that. Uh, sometimes people will, will apply rules for the new Mass, and they'll try to apply it to the old Mass. Um, you know, so there, there are questions of, well, in the new Mass, you can receive in the hand. So therefore, in the old Mass, you can receive in the hand. Not so much. Right. In the new Mass, we do this. So therefore, in the old Mass, we do this. Not so much. Right? In the new Mass, we celebrate you know, this feast on this day. In the old Mass, not so much. Right? And so we have to remember that, that the, the, the traditional Mass uh, has its own entire kind of set of, of guidelines, of rules, of rubrics, of do's and don'ts, essentially. Um, it's got all that to itself, which is an entirely different animal from the Novus Ordo. Uh, and so I know sometimes people will, will quote the, the contemporary documents on the liturgy uh, of the guidance of the, of the Novus Ordo Mass and try to apply it backwards to the Latin Mass and say, Father Brent, you need to do such and such because this document says X, Y, and Z. To which I respond, that document says X, Y, and Z in regards to the new Mass. It's a whole different set of laws. Uh, so, right? so it's a different, a different set of books entirely. Uh, and so it's important for us to kind of remember that when we're approaching it. Uh, the simple fact is, is uh, I'm not trying to be polemical. Um, I'm not trying to, to start a fire or, or any of the things that, can, uh, that I can easily be accused of. But the simple fact is the liturgical reforms of the Second Vatican Council literally changed everything. Everything. The missile has changed. Uh, I mean, we could we could have a whole discussion on the parts of the mass, and and I, I've I, I don't know that I have been able to find a single thing in the mass where either the words, the actions, or the location where it takes place has not been changed. Right. So literally everything everything was kind of tweaked in a little way. All the sacramental books were rewritten. Uh, the book of blessings is rewritten. The Book of Chants was recomposed. The calendar was rewritten. The breviary, the priest prayed was rewritten or reordered at least and rewritten. Um, and so it really is like an entirely different experience of things as anyone who has been to the Latin Mass knows, right? Uh, it, there are a lot of things that are very different. If you've been to a, a traditional baptism, and the traditional baptism, you have lots of things where where you're breathing upon the child's face, the big no-do during COVID time, right? You're just breathing just right into their face, right? And you're anointing them with oil and putting salt in their mouth. You put salt in a child's mouth in the traditional baptism, right? It sounds like a crazy thing. It's a powerful thing, right? It's even more fun when you have an adult who's being baptized and they get to, because they can respond even more than a child does, right? A child just screams a little bit. Adults give you all kinds of responses. <laughs> But there are the, these facts that the, that the rites themselves are very, very different. Um, and so it's important for us to remember that. Not, not necessarily, I'm not going to get into which one's better, which one's worse. You know, you know the, the development thereof and rupture versus continuity. Again, whole different discussions. We're just kind of getting into, getting into, the, into the starting point here. Oftentimes, whenever, whenever a person experiences a traditional Latin Mass, 
who's not been to it. There are a number of things that they will point to um, that are different than a normal experience of Mass. Um, so uh, a common thing is that people will remark about, uh, about the Latin, uh, that it's confusing often <laughs> because most of us are not uh, fluent in, in conversational Latin. And even if you were fluent in conversational Latin, that's not what's in the missile. It's like, it's like taking Shakespeare uh, versus street language. So a lot of times people will say, well, Latin, it was just the vernacular of the people. Everyone understood it. No, they didn't. And even when people spoke Latin fluently, when you read Shakespeare, when you read these, these, these high-minded poets, you, have, you read it and you go, now what was that again? Right? Because even if you understand the words, what they're conveying often is something even deeper that is, that is, is, is a profound truth, a profound mystery, something that, that, that the soul has to wrestle with. And this is the same with the sacred liturgy, right? The, the, Latin, the Latin of the liturgy is, a, is an exalted Latin. It's a very highly uh, poetic and, and, and deep Latin and not just kind of like a, hey, y'all, how you doing type of Latin, right? Um, so it's, it's something entirely different. The celebrate the language. But so that's one of the, one of the common things is, is the, the language is different. Uh, a lot of people uh, remark that the priest is facing a different direction than they're used to, right? Um, it's often described as having his back to the people, um, which I think immediately means that we're turning the liturgy, that we are the center of the liturgy uh, because he's actually got his face towards the Lord. And that's the thing that we don't think about, right? As, uh, as the priest is, is facing the same way as the community, right? facing together, right, turning towards the Lord together in, in, in solemn worship. And the priest is doing, is, is doing more of a, of a leadership acting on behalf of uh, the people, right? He's, uh, many people have heard that he's acting in persona Christi, right? He's acting in the person of Christ, but he's also acting in nomine ecclesiae, in the name of the church. So he's doing both of those. He's representing Christ to the people. He's also representing people to Christ, and so he's that intermediary that's working there between leading, leading the community ultimately to heaven. So that's another thing, this ad orientum, this eastern orientation that we have, uh, whether, whether actual geographic east, such as, uh, as we do have here, uh, or uh, liturgical east, uh, which is the cross, right, to look to the cross, to look to the crucifix. So that's another one. Uh, oftentimes you'll have, uh, depending on the parish, you'll have the communion rails will still be intact. So people often will experience that as a, as a new thing, as a different thing. Uh, they'll have uh, the fact of Gregorian chant or this, uh, this polyphony uh, that just seems kind of different. That you, you, you don't hear this very often, right? It's kind of these, these remarks about some of this of stuff that you don't always hear. Um, to which all of these things I would tell you those are still part of the Novus Ordo Mass. We just don't often experience them. Um, there's not a single document in Vatican II that says the priest was supposed to have turned around. Vatican II says the use of Latin in liturgy should be maintained, and the people of the church should know the ordinary parts, the unchanging parts of the Mass. They should know them in Latin. Gregorian chant is the, is the high point of church music, and it should be the, the goal to which every choir should uh, should aim right this is what Vatican II actually said right it's exalting these things and, and really emphasizing the necessity of these pieces and parts in the sacred liturgy so sometimes when we think of uh, well the the latin mass has 
It's got Latin, and you receive on the tongue. And they had that chant, and the priest is facing the wrong direction. None of those are the distinguishing features. They might seem to be for us, just practically, experientially. But if you look at the actual books, if you compare the new missile to the old missile, nowhere are those two different. So part of the question is, where are they different? Where are the, where are the, the distinctions? Where are the, the things uh, that are a bit different for us in the celebration of the sacred mass? And this is what I would like to, to kind of shift into here a little bit for us. So, uh, again, if you, if you go to the Latin Mass, you've got a traditional Latin Mass, um, it will feel very different if you've never been before. I remember the first time I went, I was in seminary, and uh, I was, I was, uh, it was my first year in seminary, so I was totally green, had no idea about anything under the sun. Uh, I, I, like I, was, I was basically a pagan who loved Jesus and knew he was supposed to be a priest, and Father Jeff Bahi said, well, that's good enough. The seminary will give you the training. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, so off I went to seminary. And, and uh, I, was in, I was in class with all these guys who had been to Catholic school and studied the faith and been altar servers. And I was like, I know none of these things. Um, and so, so I, was, I was very green as far as my experience of, of, of education in the life of the church. I've been in my youth group. I'd gone to my home parish. We had adoration, which I think is, was a profoundly important piece for me. Uh, so we had adoration. I knew how to pray the rosary, and I knew about the mass. I had sung in the choir. And I didn't really know how to read music, so I don't know what quality my contribution was. Um, you know, but I, I had been engaged somewhat in the church. But whenever I was at the seminary, one of the guys in the class ahead of me, he said, Brent, we're going, uh, we're going down to, uh, to serve mass in New Orleans. You want to come with us? I said, sure. He said, cool, bring your, your casket and surplus. All right. I happen to have one of those. It was in the good old days where you weren't supposed to tell anyone you had one of those. You kept it in your, quiet, in your closet quietly, uh, you know, hidden, hidden behind other long things uh, so that no one of, of, uh, of higher rank would find out that you had it, right? And so I quietly took my cassock and surplus, and we got in the car. And I said, where are we going, by the way? He said, St. Patrick's in New Orleans. And I said, okay. I didn't know where that was. Uh, so we got there, and we suited up. And we processed in, and we went to the sacristy, because there were too many of us. And we knelt in the sacristy for the better part of an hour and a half. And I was utterly confused. I said, I've been to Mass a lot of times. I'm a seminarian. I, I, I mean, I, I at least kind of know what Mass is, but I have no idea what this is. I don't understand this. Like, the, it was, he was facing the wrong direction. Everything was in a different language. Uh, you know, I can, I can understand, you know, Latin is fine and good. I knew a, a little bit of it from, from schooling. Uh, but, to, but to have the whole thing in Latin and, and all the pieces and parts, and there were all these gestures that I'd just never seen, and I was just shocked at it. And when, when we left, you know, he, ba- he basically just kind of walked me through the entire thing. He was like, all right, just kneel here. So I knelt there forever, it seemed like. Um, and then he was like, all right, we're going to go. We're going to go out there. You're going to genuflect. You're going to kneel on that step, and they're going to give you communion on the tongue. All right. So we did that, and then he was like, "All right, well, we're going to go back to the sacristy." Okay. And, was, and then at the end, he was like, "All right, we're going to we're going to process out to the back." Yes, sir. And then when we got in the car afterwards. I said, um, "What was that?" <laughs> 
again, because I, I said, I, I've been to Mass before, obviously. <laughs> what was that? And he said, that was, a, that was a solemn high traditional Latin Mass. I said, okay. And in my head, I said, I need to know about this thing, because that was, that was different, right? And so this is a, a common experience. And when people go, they, they experience that this is different. And very often accompanied with that, I'm confused, right? It's also a common experience to, to not exactly know uh, how to go, uh, kind of go about things, what to do, how to respond. Um, and so, you know, we, we know how to pray. You know, if you go to the Novus Ordo Mass, you know how to pray. You know the prayers, you know the postures. You kind of know maybe what you're supposed to be praying at a certain time, kind of what's the intentions of your heart in response to this. Um, but, but it can kind of seem like uh, the traditional Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo, as far as experiences, is like one of those fancy makeover shows where they take someone who's kind of just a wreck and they dress them all up and make them fancy and they come out and everyone's like, wow, is this the same person? <laughs> Sometimes you have that experience, right? Is this the same liturgy? Because it, it feels very different. It seems very different to me. Um, so we know that essentially it is. Again, a lot of the things that we see as the distinguishing features of the traditional Latin Mass are still distinguishing features of the Novus Ordo Mass. We just don't see it very frequently. We have a lot of options, and we often choose lesser options than, than the, the ones that are more in continuity with sacred tradition. And so there can, there can be this, this experience of, of the difference of how do I pray with this? How do I pray with the new mass or with the with the old mass when I'm used to praying with the new mass? And if essentially I would tell you, it's more or less the same. Again, if if you look at it on paper, right? Because we we typically we look at it with our eyes and our ears. We we experience it, and it seems very different to us. But if you look at it on paper, a lot of things are very much the same. Uh, we get lost in the language and the movements. But the manner of praying the Mass is essentially the same in both forms as far as the order of the Mass itself, as far as what is one doing, right? One's preparing, one's acknowledging sins to start, one's celebrating the mercy of God and the Gloria, one's listening to the readings, one's experiencing uh, Father's never-ending homily. Uh, you know, once, once, uh, after that, we have the offertory, we have the creed or the offertory. We're offering ourselves, offering our gifts to the Lord, offering uh, the, the people that we have brought with us in our hearts. We've got the consecration, we've got the gift of Holy Communion, Thanksgiving afterwards, and then the send-off. Essentially the same. But again, our experience of it can be very different. So, we're going to dive into these handy little sheets that we have here to look at a few of those things. Your top sheet should be something to the effect of quick tips for attending the traditional Latin Mass. <clears throat> so I'll put this here uh, just as a, a kind of starting point for those of you who have never been to a Latin Mass because we're, we're offering this talk and then we're going to have Mass at 9.30. If you didn't know that, we have Mass at 9.30 in the church. Uh, and you're certainly welcome to join us for that um, and to put these newfound skills and knowledge that you have into practical use. So just a, a few things uh, that, I, that I often give to people as kind of a, a little disclaimer uh, before attending their first Latin Mass or these kinds of things. The first one, the first tip, you will likely be confused. Again, it's, it's a normal thing. 
but as it says, do not allow this to take away from the beauty of the Mass itself. While it is essentially the same as the Novus Ordo, it often feels quite different. Remember that it's the sacrifice of our Lord on Calvary. Speak to him from your heart. It's Christ. Talk to him. I mean, that's what the Mass is, really, when it comes down to it. It's, it's an encounter with Christ, and it's an encounter with our blessed Lord offering himself. It's, it's us being brought into this great heavenly mystery that is uh, the, the eternal manifestation of the cross um, brought into heaven because God can do such things. So if one is confused at Mass, um, it is perfectly acceptable simply to speak to him, to experience things, to just kind of soak it in. Second point, second quick tip is use a missile. Whether a hand missile from home, like I said, a lot of times we'll have passed down the St. Joseph missiles or Father Lassance missiles uh, from, from years past. Uh, we have the Campion missiles, the larger books in the pews that are for the traditional mass. We've got the red books that are oftentimes in the back of the church um, that are missalettes. It's a smaller, a smaller version just of the ordinary unchanging part of the mass. So there are different options. Again, we have you know, other, other you know, more recent editions of these, of these hand missiles. But essentially, uh, a missile can be a helpful thing in being able to, to follow along with the prayers of the Mass. Right? Sometimes, uh, I know some of the missiles will indicate, will have little bells. Like I think, the, I think the red books have little bells. So when you hear a bell, you go, where's the bell on the page? There it is. All right, here's where we must be. Right? It's one of those things you just kind of learn. It trains us really well. And that's why we have the bells. Right? And so... Uh, so we have this, you know, the, the bells sometimes can help you or the, the gestures at various points of, of the sacred liturgy. Uh, you can sometimes follow along with the words, even though sometimes the choir is singing something. So you're on the intro it and then and then father shows up singing the <laughs> shows up singing the Gloria. You're like, wait, we flipped a bunch of pages here. Um, <laughs> you know, so sometimes things are going on that, that the priests and servers are continuing mass uh, while the music is taking place. Uh, or, or sometimes it's like the Roman canon where you think Father's just having a long pause until you hear the bells and it's consecration time. Uh, right? And so sometimes the, the silence of things can, can kind of throw us off uh, if things are not said aloud, as we're often kind of used to hearing things said aloud. Um, that can be, it can be confusing. So a missile can be helpful in, in kind of following along, looking at the gestures, being able to pick up those words that are said uh, periodically and following along in that sense. Also, be perfectly okay putting a missile down. I didn't put that one in here, but I figured I could hit that option while I was, while I was on it. Uh, use a missile if you find it helpful. If you are so lost and, and confused about your place in the missile that it's taking you away from the encounter with Christ, please put the missile down. <laughs> Set it aside. Talk to somebody later and go, you need to walk me through this thing. And they can. Somebody can, hopefully. Or spend some time with it to try to figure things out. Set it down pray so use a missile if it helps it can be helpful in kind of figuring out what's what and set it down if it's not third the postures are different Uh, as we know different places do different things different people in the same place do different things um so sometimes we're experiencing this still uh you know at various times some people stand up some people sit down some people go just stay kneeling uh and you're just kind of like well what you know so we we have the the little posture sheet the little the little small sheets 
that we made available to you. Uh, that was an attempt of mine to try to say, hey, here's some guidelines. Right? Uh, if, you heard, if you heard my homily a while back when I introduced that little sheet, um, there are no actual rubrics of what the people are supposed to be doing. Uh, the, the new mass indicates the people stand, everyone sits. It, kind of, it gives good directives. The old mass says not a peep. Uh, and so um, it's, it's kind of a bi-community type of situation where people kind of organically uh, sit, stand, kneel at various times, depending on the kind of what's, the, what's happening right now in the mass. You know, if everybody stood up for the homily, that would be weird. Uh, if everybody sat down for the consecration, that would be even more weird, right? And so, you know, there's kind of a, a general norm uh, that's followed. If you're not used to the postures, it's good not to sit in the first, second, or third row. Because <laughs> you will also confuse everyone, because you will be doing something different, and everyone will probably start to follow you, who may or may not have any idea what you were doing. Been there from experience. It's super fun. <laughs> So it's good sometimes, not that, not that you want to be the good Catholics and take the back seat, maybe take a middle seat, right? It's kind of that, that middle ground where, you know, they got some, some people who look like they know what they're doing uh, seated ahead of you so you can kind of go, okay, that family looks like they come here often. Or I've seen them a few times. I'm going to stick here and do what they do. It's a common thing. Uh, so perfectly acceptable just to, uh, to, pick a, to pick a family that may or may not know that you are watching them the entire Mass. Um, <laughs> and to follow along, right? Is the redness let, is that accurate with when it says it's in Somewhat. Somewhat. Yeah, so the fun, thing about, the fun thing about postures is every resource you consult is different. Uh, there's, there was a, a nice handy chart that I found uh, putting together the, the main commentators as far as postures. Uh, so they have the, the, the red book, the Ecclesia Dei, uh, from so so we have them that has the postures in there. Uh, Father or Archbishop Sheen has a commentary that indicates postures. Uh, Father Adrian Fortescue. Um, I'm blanking on a few. There's there's several others, and the fun thing is that that most of them they will agree on on certain common things. Right, everybody agrees. You sit during the sermon. You stand, uh, you stand, you know, at, at, at certain points, like the entrance procession, you kneel at the consecration. But there are other various points where four of them will agree and two of them will say something different. Or five of them will agree and the other one comes out of left field and they're like, why would you stand right there? Um, and so it's, uh, again, it's kind of different things in different places. Part of it's because I think, you know, a couple of those, a couple of those commentators are in England where they do things a little bit differently than they do in the United States where they do things a little bit differently than they do in Rome. It's a common practice in, in some cultures, and particularly uh, traditionally in Rome, that immediately after the consecration of the chalice, everyone stands. That would seem weird to us. If everybody stood, people would be like, why, why are y'all doing that? You're supposed to keep kneeling to the end of the canon, right? That's, you know, but, but in that culture, it was normative, that standing was, was kind of the experience, the, the communal liturgical response after the consecration of the precious blood. And so um, all that is to say, sometimes the Red Book is right. Sometimes it is not. All of it is kind of optional, again, because there are no <laughs> rubrics on exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, so those folks who put that book together were kind of going what they normally do in their community and just put it on paper and then... 
all of America was like, all right, sounds good, and followed suit, more or less. So, um, uh, uh, well, I was just going to say that to answer, answer this gentleman's question, I've gone through my highlighted copy of the Ecclesia Day Missalette, and everything matches for the high mass besides the, uh, the insensation is not listed in the Ecclesia Day book as a time to stand. Uh, I have not done a low mass through it yet, though. Here it comes. That's happening today, so you can put it to the test. So. But isn't that an indication that that's not what's important? You know what I'm saying? I mean, whether you're sitting or standing or kneeling or sleeping, I mean, (laughs) sleeping's not ideal at mass. Um, But. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. It's yeah, it's it's the disposition of the heart. Um, and it's, it's also to recognize that, that there, are some people, um, there are some people who can't, who can't kneel. Uh, there are some people who, you know, it, it, st- the, the standing, sitting, kneeling thing is a little too much. So, you know, it's kind of, it's a little flexible. It's, you know, again, um, nobody, there, there are no referees. The, the ushers on the side don't have flags to flag on the play. We got a sitter here, you know. It's, it's not a thing. Um, yeah, so it's. It's, again, really, it's it's a, a personal, yeah, it's a personal, it's a personal experience, and and again, the the general postures are kind of a, a guideline of if it's appropriate to stand at this point, you know, for particular reasons, or it's appropriate to kneel at this point for particular reasons, um, and so uh, yeah, that's uh, it's not strictly uh, unlike unlike myself, where the book tells me I put my right arm in the right sleeve first, my left arm in the left sleeve second. And then pull my alb over my head. That's in the book. It tells me what arm to put in first. By the way, every time you step in the sanctuary, it needs to be your right foot, right? Because you're at the right hand of the Father. It's the place where our Lord is. And that's who you're coming to encounter. So you always step with your right foot first. All these details are in the books that I have to observe those things. Y'all have no, <laughs> you have no guidance whatsoever. And I have which sleeve to put on first. So it's kind of a, it's an interesting uh, <laughs> dynamic <laughs> between the two. Can the altar servers watching them kind of be a guideline? Is to the, the, watching the altar servers is usually not, not the best guideline because most of the time they're, they're kneeling. Like even even during the some parts where to be it would be common to stand, um, it would be normative for the for the servers to be kneeling uh, or like kind of doing different postures because uh, sometimes they're up and moving around when you're sitting, you know, or, or they're or they're kneeling while you're standing and kind of different things. So um, theoretically, if there's a priest in choir, if if he knows what's up, theoretically he would be a good one to follow. Um, but but even then, sometimes you get a priest who's Who's there? Because he's he's interested and he's trying to learn too. So it's not like he even is a a, a solid guide to follow in that sense. Yeah. Father, I was just wondering. You, you had given us a sheet of paper mm-hmm. a while back, um, and it sounds like you're saying that this developed over time mm-hmm. with in a, each particular community, the church, like maybe they would do it slightly different when you're in England versus over here. Is that something we should be looking to do is maybe have our uh, something that is named to St. Agnes? Is that what you would do with the sheet of paper so that, I mean, we could always get a clap mm-hmm. and do kind of whatever our hearts lead us, but if we had something that, okay, this is how we do it for you, it might help. Yeah. 
I guess the question is whether, whether I was trying to have something specific for St. Agnes, um, whether that's something to, like a, a goal to shoot for, uh, I guess, maybe mm-hmm. to some degree. And I, I, I did the posture sheet and kind of put that together, um, kind of taking what we already do here for the most part and just kind of trying to clarify a little bit. Uh, no, there was, there was question versus low mass and high mass. And which one are we doing? Because there are different postures for them. So part of it was clarifying those two. Uh, part of it was just kind of giving something consistent because I know we have a lot of people who are, uh, who are relatively new to the Latin Mass uh, who are, are kind of trying to follow along in this kind of thing. And so I, I essentially did it as a way of, of trying to say, hey, if you, if you want to not just be confused about what posture you're supposed to be having the entire time, kind of here's a, a communal option you know, right. to be able to observe that. So it was more just at a, an intention of, so that people aren't continuously doing the mass going, well, what, are we supposed to be standing? They're standing there. You look like they know what they're doing, but these people know what they're doing too. And they're sitting. <laughs> yeah. So it's a perpetual question. So that's kind of why I put the sheets out is just for you to be able to, to have some kind of guidance where you could say, well, the paper says stand. So here we go. You know, <laughs> And even then, you might be the only one because everybody else is still sitting for some reason. <laughs> Again, lots of fun things happen in regards to with postures. <laughs> it, is, it is what it is, you know. It's, it's the joy of the church. So, uh, the next piece on there. I'm sorry. Do we have high and low masses here? We do have high and low masses. Yes, yeah, so Sunday mass is high mass. Uh, so, right, if the, if the choir is singing... If the priest is, is chanting, uh, that's high mass. Uh, if it's spoken, it's low mass. Uh, and so I know we were doing a, a, a sort of hybrid, um, uh, a sung low mass, um, which honestly I had not encountered anywhere else, so I was kind of confused by it when I initially arrived. Um, but, but yeah, essentially um, that there are different rubrics that the priest observes and the servers observe. Uh, and so... Generally, a good rule is if the chalice is on the altar, it's a sung mass. If it's not on the altar, uh, it's a low mass. You can look at the candles. Uh, if there are two candles lit, it's low mass. If there are six, it's high mass, sung mass, right? So those are some of the indicators. If you see my chasuble uh, on, the, on the pew, uh, on the, uh, the sedilia, the, the bench where the priest sits, right? Uh, if you see the chasuble there, if you're from an angle where you can see, um, that will be draped over there. That means, at least on a Sunday, that means it's high mass because the priest is processing in, doing the sprinkling rite, and the spiritus are bidiaquam, and then changing into it, and all that's going to be sung. Uh, and so there, there are several visual cues of what you can, of what, of whether it's going to be high mass or low mass. But the main thing is if, if we're singing, it's high mass. Kind of a good general rule. Not really. <laughs> it happens. A lot of things happen. Um, whether you know, whether, you know, and, and yeah, kind of different situation. But don't worry about it. Six candles, high mass. Two candles, low mass. That's all you need to know. <laughs> and and otherwise, we gotta just gotta talk to our servers. But they're usually on point with that. So. Uh, you know, we're all, we're all good. So trust the candles. Trust the candles. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Um, 
the last thing on quick tips for... <laughs> these, these quick tips are not so quick, are they? <laughs> last thing on quick tips is receiving Holy Communion is different. Um, so it's, it's a common posture. Uh, the, the norm is receiving, kneeling, and on the tongue. Uh, again, receiving the hand is not an option. If your knees don't cooperate with you and you have to stand, we understand, obviously. Uh, and communion is still given uh, on the tongue at that point. Uh, but it is uh, typically kneeling on the tongue, as is uh, the standard, the standard uh, posture. Additionally, uh, the, communion, the communicant, uh, the person receiving communion, does not say amen. Uh, it's normative. Uh, for people in, the, in people who go in the in the, the Novus Ordo Mass, the, the English masses or contemporary Latin Mass, I guess, um, the respo- you know the the minister says the body of Christ, and you say Amen as a sort of profession of faith. Um, that exchange is different for the traditional Mass. The priest isn't isn't inviting you to say anything in response. Uh, rather, when he's coming to you, when he when when he's uh, giving communion to the person next to you, you just open your mouth, stick out your tongue a bit, and pro tip to help me, uh, lean your head back a little, because that's that's really good. Because I'm uh, I'm a little I'm a little taller, uh, and so if someone if someone is is head high here and they open their, <laughs> I like sometimes I have to like find where the tongue is because their their head is down, right? Uh, so. Also a good posture, right? Lean your head back. I can see, I can see the target. Um, and we can hit the target clearly on spot. And, and everything is good, right? Also, it's just, it's easier, right? Because gravity, you know, sticks to your tongue, stays up. All is good. The thing the priest prays is, is unlike the, the ordinary form where, whatever, you know, a new mass. Um, the priest says the body of Christ and you say Amen. In the traditional mass, he says uh, the longer Latin, a longer Latin prayer, that is something that he's he's imparting something here. It says, "May the body of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve your soul to everlasting life." Amen. Uh, and so he's saying the prayer himself, and he says the amen. Uh, and so this is why uh, you don't have to you don't have to wait until I'm done saying that to open your mouth. You don't have to say amen at the thing at the end of where I say. Uh, that piece and that that part, um, and so, just whenever the priest is there in front of you, uh, he makes the sign of the cross, so you get like a little benediction, mini benediction, personal, uh, given to you, and then and then the host is given to you on your tongue. You don't have to say anything; you just receive. There's a beautiful Psalm Psalm 81 um, that speaks speaks of us uh, of this fact, <clears throat> and uh, it's the Lord, right? It says. Open your mouth and I will feed you. And so it's a good reminder to us. Psalm 81 of the Lord speaking. It says, open your mouth and I will feed you. Right? It's, so when we, come, when we come to receive Holy Communion, it's, it, it's like little birds. right? Mama birds are going to come feed. All you have to do, open your mouth. Like airplane with kids. Right? All the kid has to do is go. And they get food. They get nourishment for the body. And it's to remember that we're children of God. No matter if we're 8 or 80 or 88 or whatever is higher than that, whatever age we might be, it's to remember that we are children of God and our Father wants to feed us. Right? And so this is a, a reminder to us that, that I don't have to do the thing in response here. I just have to receive this gift of God because he's the one that preserves my soul to eternal life. 
I just have to cooperate with him. I have to say yes. I have to let that happen. So I have to let that happen to me receiving communion. Then I have to let his grace actually do something. I have to open my heart to be moved by him and to go and, and to, to live virtue, to live holiness, to live my faith, to live service of others, to live that, the, the call of the gospel in whatever particular form it comes to you. So those are the five not-so-quick tips for Latin Mass. So the, the priest prays, may the body of Christ preserve, may the body of our Lord Jesus Christ preserve your soul to everlasting life. So he's saying, right, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have life within you. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have eternal life. This is the promise that's being reminded every single, every single time we receive communion in the traditional form. It says, may, may, this, may this, which is the body of Christ, may this preserve your soul, save you for eternal life. This is, this is the food that gets you to heaven. Remember that. This is the food that saves you. Remember that. Right? It's, that it's that same thing, right? The manna in the desert from the, from the people of Israel. Uh, it's the thing that got them to the promised land. If they didn't have that for 40 years, they would have just died. But they had the food in the promised land. They had that bread that came down from heaven and the, the crazy miraculous quail that showed up every morning. It was that nourishment for them on the way to heaven, right? And so the, the words are just kind of a verbal reminder of that, right? This is... This is the gift that preserves your soul to eternal life. Why was those words changed in the order? Yeah, that's a different discussion. Um, I know, I know a, a large part of many of the reforms uh, as regards to the new mass uh, were trying to, I think, engage the community more and to be less... Um, Less spectators and more engaged actors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There are plenty of there are plenty of kind of big and notable changes uh, that one can have a lot of good, honest questions and discussion about. Um, but yeah, I think I think that was probably one of the primary things. And um, I've not. There's a there's a big book about Gay Thick from it's essentially the, the liturgical diary of Annabel Bugnini, who was kind of the architect of the new mass. Uh, so it, it's, it's 30 years of him working in the liturgy office, kind of describing why they were doing what they were doing and, and some of these kind of things. Uh, so you, you can kind of get a mind uh, if you can find a copy of that. I uh, forget the title of it offhand. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but again, there are a variety of reasons and intentions. Some of it was trying to restore ancient kind of ancient postures or ancient uh, things that they had heard. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of present in the early church. And so there was a sense of, of kind of a, a restoration, uh, sometimes a stripping away of things that were kind of extraneous uh, and, and repetitive, uh, as well as a, a, a seeking to engage, engage the people more in the, in the liturgy itself, right? This active participation uh, in the sense of, of engaging what's taking place in the liturgy, not necessarily just doing things, not being busybodies, but being able to enter into and, and engage the liturgy. So I would think that one or more of those were probably part of the, the reason to, to pull that together. So not exactly sure. Yeah. So continuing on, on the back of that sheet, we have the anatomy of a hand missile. And we're right at an hour. So uh, I'm going to try to clip along here at a little, at a little pace. So a hand missile. So there are important distinctions on, uh, on spelling. 
This is a missile, M-I-S-S-A-L, not an M-I-S-S-I-L-E. I would not want one of those on the altar. Similarly, I wear Beretta, B-I-R-E-T-T-A, not a Beretta, B-E-R-E-T-T-A, right? And so we've got these strange, <laughs> these strange terminologies that we have that are older than, uh, older than the things that, that they exist. So we have a hand missile. So uh, we have this here, which includes, as it says in there, uh, generally six, six particular parts. So in the front, you'll have, uh, you'll have all kinds of random information. You'll often have kind of liturgical documents, liturgical calendars. When is Easter? When is Christmas? I mean, we always know when Christmas is. You know, some of the movable feasts of the year, they'll have that. When are the saints' feast days? Some of this. In the front of the missile, oftentimes you'll have the proper seasons, uh, which is the entire liturgical year. So, um, so Advent, Christmas, uh, the time after Christmas, Epiphany Tide, Septuagesima, Quinquagesima, Lent, uh, Easter, post-Pentecost, all of those are here in the front. So if, if it's typically a Sunday, you're going to have a page marked here in the front. Continuing past that, you will have the ordinary of the Mass, which is the unchanging part. So the Kyrie, the prayers before the altar, the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Credo, um, the, the Roman Canon, the, all the various prayers that are prayed pretty much every single Mass. All of that is in the ordinary, right? The order, the structure of the Mass. Often following that, you'll have either the commons or the proper of saints. So the proper of saints uh, is for a particular feast day of a particular saint. So we just did uh, Missile Roulette here, landed on February 1st, St. Ignatius, Bishop, and Martyr. So in this Mass, in this particular Missile, it's got the Mass for St. Ignatius. It's got the introits, so what the, what the choir would be singing if it was a high Mass, or what the priest is going to say once he gets up to the altar. Uh, so the introit, the proper collect, proper prayers, and this is for St. Ignatius. So on weekdays, you will very often find yourself in the proper of saints. Uh, you will also find yourself in the commons. So a common is basically if a saint doesn't have all the pieces and parts for a mass, if they don't have an intro, the opening collect, the opening prayer, uh, the epistle, the gradual, the alleluia, the gospel, and all the things that follow. If they don't have all of those things for a particular saint, right? So sometimes they get very particular. Sometimes it's just like you're not that great uh, <laughs> to get your own proper special mass. Um, and, so they, and so they kind of punt to the common. And so... If you happen to be a virgin martyr, if you don't have your, a proper mass, you would go in the back to the common of virgin martyrs. And it usually says, go to this particular mass. You know? um, so like St. Philomena, uh, she doesn't have, uh, or, or, or she has propers, but they're not always, not always used. Um, so if you, were, if you were offering a mass for St. Philomena, who's not in the calendar, not in the back of the book, you would do a, a mass of a common common of a virgin martyr, which is the Misa Loque Bar. So you would find the Mass, and usually it's the first line. The Misa Loque Bar is the Mass with the intro it. The first prayer is Loque Bar, and then it follows, right? And so they just call a Mass by the first couple of words, usually at the title. So the, the propers are the ones that are specific to the saint. The common is the stuff that's the pieces and parts that are not specific to them to fill in the rest of the gaps. And then in the back, there are often uh, various popular prayers and devotions. Uh, that's a very quick jaunt through a book that is 2,200 pages long. There is a ton of stuff in a missile, regardless of, regardless of which one you have. Uh, there is a ton of stuff that is in here that certainly worth spending some time kind of uh, perusing, flipping through the pages, looking through, the, looking through all the different pieces and parts 
that are present there. Tips on how to prepare your missile if you're going to be using one for Holy Mass. Step number one, you have to know what you're doing that day. Uh, is it a Sunday? Is it a feast day? Is it a, a burial day? Is it a Mass for the dead? Is it a vote of Mass of the Sacred Heart for First Friday? Right, so these, these questions, you have to figure out what Mass you're doing first. Sundays, it's easy. It's usually just Sunday. So you find the Sunday, right? If you're ever curious, you can go to divinumofficium.com, the little website there. And uh, there's a, a thing, I think it maybe says Sancta Misa or Misa or something to that effect. Um, you, you will recognize probably the words um, that will lead you to a little thing that will have at the top of the page what the feast of the day is normally. Uh, it doesn't mean Father can't change. If it's a weekday, he might throw in a daily mass of the dead and he'll walk out in black vestments and you are ready for something in green. You know, it happens. Uh, but first, trying to figure out what, what the mass of the day is. Uh, so following that. And then secondly, setting your ribbons accordingly. Uh, so most of, most of your ribbon, most of your missiles, if you have a larger missile, you've got probably six or eight ribbons. And sometimes you'll use all six of them, uh, just kind of paging back and forth within the mass. And so I have a little, a little setting there of, of when, uh, of where it might be good to place your ribbons. And I'll leave that for you to, to read through and to try to sort out for yourself. Uh, again, that last part, if the priest chooses an option that you don't have marked and you can't find... Enjoy the ordinary of the Mass. Enjoy the homily. Maybe he'll tell you what he's doing to give you a cue so you can pick up for the latter half. Uh, but again, sometimes it just happens and we do the best we can to keep up. On the bottom of that page, uh, I have a few, of the, a few of the missile options that indicate where the start of those sections are. Uh, so if you've got the, the Baronius or Angelus or uh, the St. Joseph Daily Missile, not the Continuous, but the Daily Missile, or the Father Stedman Missile, it indicates what pages those things start, and then you can find your spot accordingly. The color of the ribbons, is that, is that, is that supposed to be something that helps Ribbon color is not necessary uh, to follow. Some are faded, some are all red, some are different colors. They usually just have different colors for different feasts. Sometimes you, get, like, to get, you like to get fancy and use the color ribbon of the day for the feast that it is, so you want to use the red ribbon in the proper of saints because it's the Virgin Martyr's Feast Day. I never do that because then you get all the ribbons mixed up and they all turn short because they're all wrapped around each other at the top of the book. It bothers the mess out of me. I can't handle that. So I just keep them in where they are, regardless of color. That's me. You do you. You know, if you want to color match your ribbons, by all means, um, I'm 100% behind you. Uh, so feel free. Yeah, so uh, we hop to the calendar already. <laughs> so before we get there, so the calendar where it says uh, Saint Agnes schedule for traditional Latin masses. These are masses that I that I thought were important enough for us for us to celebrate them whenever they fall. So we have Sunday mass, we have Tuesday mass, and we have whatever day these these happen to fall on mass. Uh, so like next next week we've got Tuesday mass, September the twenty eighth. So we'll have Tuesday Mass. We also want to celebrate St. Michael because he's a powerful intercessor for us. So we're going to have Mass again next Wednesday uh, in the evening as well. And so uh, these dates are dates where you can, uh, you can pretty much be sure that we will be offering Latin Masses here. I wanted this to be in your hands for, for our parishioners or for people who are visitors or whatever the case. 
These are the days, uh, in addition to Sunday and Tuesday, these are various feasts of the year, but we'll have Masses offered here. So, I'll give you a quick rundown on the structure of the liturgical year, because that's easier. Structural liturgical year, the colorful sheet you have there. So again, as I mentioned, everything changed. So a lot, of, a lot of tweaks and changes, some of them are, are rather major, some of them are, are, are very minor, things that you probably would never have noticed unless somebody pointed it out to you. What this is, is a little guide to essentially, uh, I started in Advent 2021. Uh, so at the, end of this, at the end of this liturgical year, I just kind of started with the calendar for next year and compared Sundays to Sundays, uh, old form, new form. So you can see there that there is some difference in, in the colorings. Uh, as well as the as the namings of the feast. So Advent, basically the same as far as the Sundays are concerned. Christmas, of course, Christmas falls whenever the 25th of December falls. Uh, in, the, in the old form, there's a difference uh, in the celebration of the Christmas feasts. Uh, so in the, in the traditional form, uh, the Sunday within the octave is the Sunday in the octave of Christmas. It's the Sunday that falls within the eight-day celebration of the birth of our Savior. The Sunday after that is the Feast of the Holy Name. The Sunday after that is the Feast of the Holy Family. In the ordinary form, the Novus Ordo Mass, Christmas, the Sunday after Christmas is Holy Family. The Sunday after that, typically in most places uh, these days, is the Feast of the Epiphany, which you see the little note there on the side. In the the Latin Mass, the Epiphany is always celebrated on January 6th. So it might be a Tuesday, um, but that that day is going to be celebrated as Epiphany. Uh, and then after that is the baptism of the Lord. And you see little notes there. The baptism of the Lord for the traditional Mass is celebrated on the 13th, right? The octave of the Epiphany. Uh, and so the old form kind of sticks to, the, to the, the, the calendar dates a bit more uh, than, than the Novus Ordo Mass, which sought to move some of the feasts to Sundays so as to, to allow kind of a larger participation in those particular feasts. You see, we pick up on the green, on the green there, but they have different names. Uh, the old form is uh, Sundays after Epiphany, because we're continuing Epiphany Tide. Uh, so it's kind of a season unto itself, a season of, of Epiphany um, that is um, that is not is, is not a season so much in the ordinary form anymore. Rather, we have the Sundays of ordinary time, ordered time, numeral numeral time. So we pick up there on the second uh, the second Sunday uh, of these. Uh, and then we uh, go down. We see the, the green extends a little bit more than the, than the, uh, than the purple uh, for the Novus Ordo. That's because we have the season of pre-Lent, Septuagesima, uh, which is 70 Sunday, and then 60 Sunday, and then 50 Sunday, uh, before we get to Lent, which is the 40 days of Lent. So we have 40, and then they back it up you know, a week, the Sunday before each of them. So we have before Lent, which is Quadragesima, 40s. Uh, so we have Quinque. Septa, right? And so it kind of goes back. And it's basically just the fact that, uh, that I think many people's experience is you, you finally start to get into Lent, usually about the third Sunday or fourth Sunday of Lent. You really start to remember to, to, to abstain from meat on the Friday if that's not a normal observance. Or you're actually kind of getting good at, at, at observing your, your Lenten penance. You're just kind of getting into it when you're kind of right on the back end. 
Uh, and so Mother Church gave us three penitential Sundays uh, prior to, up to Adjustment season, three Sundays for us to start seeing the purple. We still have some of the, right, we still have some of the, uh, we still have the Alleluia being sung and things, but it's kind of a gradual stripping away of, of the celebratory parts to, to transition us into penance. And so that's what those three Sundays there are before. Continuing on, the rest of Lent. Uh, Lent is mostly the same up to the fourth Sunday. Passion Sunday and Palm Sunday were two different, two different things in the old form. So Passion Tide was two weeks long. Uh, so now we have Passion Sunday or Palm Sunday. Uh, they kind of merged together uh, in the Nova Sordo Mass. Uh, but previously they were separate, uh, so two distinct weeks. So you would have purple for a good long while. Then when you got to rose, you knew after rose was red. And after red, we have white, which is our Lord's, our Lord's glory. So Easter, octave of Easter. Sundays after Easter, or Sundays of Easter, notice that they are off by one. Uh, because uh, the Sundays after Easter in the, in the traditional Mass uh, include the Easter octave. So the eighth day is still Easter. So the next week is the second Sunday after Easter, or the first Sunday after Easter, or whatever the case. Yeah, second Sunday after Easter. Am I right? Yeah. So the other one includes Easter Sunday as the first Sunday of Easter, and then the second Sunday of Easter, and the third Sunday of Easter. So they don't exactly match up exactly perfectly, but it is what it is. Ascension is celebrated on Sunday, and the Novus Ordo is celebrated on the Thursday before that Sunday, and the traditional Mass. Trinity Sunday remains the same. Corpus Christi is celebrated on the Thursday rather than the Sunday in the Novus Ordo. And then we pick up the numeration, second Sunday after Pentecost, and mysteriously, ta-da, 13th Sunday of Ordinary Time. When we left off at, ta-da, 8th Sunday of Ordinary Time. <laughs> One of those things, y'all. Uh, <laughs> they have the numbers for the other, the other Feast of Ordinary Time. They're just, uh, sometimes they're before they're, they're before Easter or they're before Lent. Sometimes they're after. There's one, I forget if it's like the 10th Sunday of Ordinary Time or something. There's one of those Sundays of Ordinary Time that the next time it's to be celebrated, next time it will be observed because the calendar moves, is like 2038. Um, a friend and I, we were looking like, when's the next time we're going to preach on that passage? I was like, it's in the thing. It's in the lectionary. When are we going to preach on it? He was like, 2038. <laughs> what? <laughs> Um, so <laughs> some of those middle ground numbers, they, they rotate, they, they move, whether it's before Easter or, or before Lent or after Easter. Um, they just kind of pick up the numeration wherever they happen to be. And we omit the others in place of the, uh, of the Feast of Pentecost, Trinity Sunday, Corpus Christi. And that will form. So are the readings, do they follow the same dialogue? It's entirely different readings. Readings are entirely different. Yeah, so the, the new Mass has a three-year cycle. Uh, the old mass has a one-year cycle, so every year, on yeah, every year on the feast of, of the second Sunday of Lent, you're always going to hear the same exact readings, could be same prayers, same everything. Uh, if you printed out a liturgical year of little of little booklets, you could just file them away and pick it up the next year, and it'd be the same. It'd be the same year after year, right? Those little labelli, little books. Um, No idea. It's on the parish calendar somewhere. <laughs> these, these dates are active on our, per, on our current parish calendar uh, for the most part. Well, these are for the, uh, 
Yes, it's on a, we have a parish calendar on the internet. Most of you don't know about it, but it exists. Uh, I can thank Nick Leo for getting that set up for us uh, and getting, getting that up and running. Um, but yeah, the parish, the parish, the bottom of the parish page, or maybe the top, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere there's a calendar. I think it might be in the bottom if, if it's not in the little top bar. Um, it's a thing that indicates what our weekly schedule is. It has masses, confessions, healing masses, uh, various, other, uh, various other events such as this one, uh, as well as the Latin masses that are timed in there. So, um, so our, our calendar will be there. And some of that, some of it may, may get tweaked or changed based off of if I can find a priest. If I'm not there that day, I have to find another priest. He's going to say, well, I can do 11, but not 10. Souls, we'll take 11. <laughs> So sometimes it'll be that kind of situation. So wrapping up here, uh, Green Sundays, just a lot of Green Sundays. Sometimes a special feast will fall where you'll have a saint on a, on a Green Sunday or this kind of thing. Christ the King is, is observed differently in the traditional form. It's observed on the last Sunday of October. and the new form, it's observed on the last Sunday of the liturgical year. <sighs> Comparisons in the structure of Holy Mass. The thing you probably showed up to learn about. And we're at time. So, what I would invite you to do, a little homework if you like, if you are interested in what are the exact differences between the masses themselves, the things that are actually different, not just the things that we experience as different versus chant versus not chant or Latin versus not Latin, um, the things that are actually different between the two, is this, this comparison to the structure of Holy Mass. So, uh, again, I covered, we've covered pieces and parts of this. There are some things that are, that are uh, effectively the same. Right? We sing the Gloria, the same. We do the Creed, we do the Homily, do the, do the Gospel reading. Uh, so oftentimes there are different things, such as the responsorial psalm uh, that is often antiphonally done, you know, uh, kind of a verse and refrain type of response. Uh, is just is just a verse. It's just a chant sung by the by the scola uh, that we have that we have the prayers at the foot of the altar before the Latin Mass uh, before we begin with the intro at the entrance prayer, um, and so we have that that happens before uh, before we even ascend the altar. So there, uh, the Latin Mass. Basically, I'll kind of give a a real quick run through. With a Latin Mass, there are prayers you pray when you get to the sanctuary and the servers, the servers kneel and the priest is there and they're all at the steps, uh, not on Sunday when we're doing the sprinkling, right, but on the steps of the, of the high altar. Right? So those are preparatory prayers. It's, it's prayers basically to say, Lord, I don't, have, uh, I, don't have, uh, I don't have a leg to stand on as far as saying that I deserve to be here. So we're going to pray these prayers. Um, pray for God's mercy. Pray for God's grace. Pray for God's strength. And recognize that, that this is the Holy of Holies that we're, that we're entering into and presuming to step up to. Uh, so the, there are these prayers that are prayed first before the priest ascends the altar to actually reverence the altar and begin the Mass. So there's those, the prayers that are for the altar that are prayed. Uh, I said the Kyrie is three recitations rather than two. Uh, the Confidior is done uh, before one ascends the altar. Uh, notably, uh, for those of you who have been at some of the Masses, there are commemorations. So commemoration, unlike our, our, the, our current missal, the new mass, uh, you have to pick. So if you, have, if you have two saints that you really like, you have to pick one of them. And they celebrate that mass and only that mass, and the other one kind of gets ignored. 
Uh, I haven't celebrated St. Clair of Assisi in years. Because um, <laughs> I always celebrate St. Philomena, and you've got to pick one, right? Um, whereas in the Old Mass, you can celebrate one particular saint as the, the main saint of the day, and you can celebrate another one, a commemoration. So there are three sets of prayers as the, the collect, the secret that you don't hear, and the post-communion at the end, where you can tack on another person, another saint's prayer. Um, there are certain times where if the feast is a celebratory feast, like Lent, if it's, a seat, it's the feast of a saint, you also do the prayer for the day because those are of greater importance. If you're praying for uh, rain, which is not a thing we normally do here, if you're praying for rain to stop, which is a thing we do here, there's a prayer. There's a set of prayers in the back of the missile. So we could pray for a particular saint of the day, but if it's been raining like crazy and we want it to stop, there's an extra prayer that says for the stopping of rain, right? And so we can tack that in and have a sort of communal intention as we're honoring this saint. And so you can have up to three of those uh, in the old mass. So three of those prayers. So you could celebrate the saint of the day, a particular intention, as well as another saint uh, kind of together with them. And that just changes when you sit, essentially, uh, versus, uh, versus the readings. Going through, there's no second reading. Uh, today you will get a, an extra dose. There are, I think, three readings before we start the readings. Um, so today, it will be a little confusing, maybe even to those of you who are normally present there, uh, because on Ember, on Ember Days, there are preparatory readings that prepare you for the readings. Uh, and so we're going to have, I think, five, five or six readings today. Uh, and so we'll, we'll rifle through that. I'm going I'm I'm to read the readings in English outright from the start rather than the Latin and then the English, because doing five readings in Latin, five readings in English... Um, so we're going we're gonna to just do the readings in English in the vernacular today for us during the Mass, which is, which is a, an option for us at the low Mass. So we'll do that. <clears throat> the offertory prayers, the, priest, the, the prayers the priest prays when he's offering the bread and the wine are different. Uh, the prayers the priest prays when he's washing his hands are different. Again, lots of things that the priest does uh, have changed or been tweaked. With regards to the Eucharistic prayer, <clears throat> in the Old Mass there's one and only one. The Roman canon. It doesn't matter if it's daily mass. It doesn't matter if it's the highest Christmas mass. It doesn't matter if the Pope's mass. It doesn't matter if it's a newly ordained priest who has barely any idea what priesthood is like yet. It's always one Eucharistic prayer. There's no, there's no gradations between them. In the new mass, there are multiple. Uh, so there are four. Uh, the main four, Eucharistic prayer one, is the Roman canon for the most part. Um, <clears throat> so you've got the four, uh, and then you've got, you've got two for... Two for reconciliation, three for various uses. There's another one for masses with children. Um, so I think there, there are, what, nine? Nine, ten, eleven. There's a fair number. There's more than one. I'll tell you that, right? And so that's why you have these various options for different feasts. Uh, unfortunately, we don't hear the Roman canon very frequently uh, at the Novus Ordo, unless you're, unless you're with me here on Sunday, in which case I do it every Sunday, much to some people's frustration. <laughs> It's the longest one where you have to kneel the longest. That's why some people don't like it so much. And then I have to say all the saints' names. Why that, Father? <clears throat> so we go through those things, right? And then one, one other noticeable tweak is, the, uh, is Holy Communion. As we said, not just in the posture and the manner in which you receive, but also in the fact that, that the priest receives first, and then, uh, and then the people do their own gestures. And so the priest does his... Domine non sum Lord, I'm not worthy, three times. 
uh, prays this preparatory prayer, says that, receives Holy Communion, receives the, the body and the blood of our Lord, and then afterwards uh, prays a prayer over the servers as well as the community, the community, right? The indulgentiam, the misericordia and indulgentiam, which are the prayers that follow the I confess, which has just been prayed. So it's kind of the if you if you had any venial sins that got to you during mass, if somebody somebody was frustrated and you know, just kind of got flustered about something or got distracted about something, right? So that's where that second confidior comes into play. Indulgentiam and misericordia is the, is the, uh, an absolution. Uh, so it is an absolution for venial sins. It's not just to get out of jail free card if you got moral sin does not count there but for venial sins it is a a a preparation a washing a a kind of removing of things so as to be able to receive holy communion well so everyone uh the the servers make that on behalf of the community you can certainly join in uh kind of quietly in your own heart uh, and hearing those hearing those prayers prayed and making the sign of the cross at the indulgentiam as the servers do Uh, and then and then they turn around and the priest does the ecce agnus dei and then the community then responds, Domine non sibidus, Lord, I'm not worthy, right? And so there's this, this um, the priest does it first, and the community does it, uh, the, whole, the whole rite, again, afterwards. And that's uh, mainly because, uh, again, the old rite emphasizing the aspect of sacrifice, that the priest has to complete the sacrifice first. Uh, so once the sacrifice is completed, the priest has received, interestingly <coughs> enough, if, it, if a, like in the, in the new mass, if a priest is celebrating, but he receives a host not celebrated, not consecrated at that mass. If he receives one from the tabernacle, his mass is invalid because it has to be that sacrifice, that mass, um, right? And so it's, a, it's an important thing. It's not a, it's not just kind of like, oh, you know, whatever. Like it's an important thing. The sacrifice you don't you don't begin the sacrifice of our Lord, re, the the reenactment and making present of it once more, and then stop halfway. Right. You don't you don't just not complete the sacrifice, which is eat and drink. Right. So that's the fulfillment of the sacrifice. You have to eat the flesh and drink the blood. So this is what the priest does. He completes the sacrifice first. And once it is completed, then he invites the others to kind of come in and to make those same preparatory prayers and to bring the bring those gifts I'm, I'm to the community. You said that's, a, that's for the Latin mass. I didn't catch the very first you say yeah. for that invalid, but that's for the Latin mass or any mass or I don't know if I didn't So at, at the new mass. At the new mass. If you have priests celebrating, yes. And they bring hosts out of the tabernacle, yes. And those priests receive those hosts rather than ones consecrated at that mass, yes. their mass is invalid. Well, how come we can get Because you are not the one who is effecting the sacrifice. Oh. It is the priest who is the one responsible for effecting the sacrifice. And, and everyone else partakes of it. So the priest has that obligation to celebrate the sacrifice, and that's what he's doing. If a priest gets there during the Gloria, he can't can celebrate. He can try, and sometimes they do, but it's not, it doesn't count, so to speak, right? Because you've got to be there from the first to the start to the end. If you, if you receive communion, like sometimes at the cathedral, you know, the priest will be off on the side. Sometimes the priest will have somewhere to go, so after communion time, he'll duck out the side door. No bueno. <laughs> you didn't finish, right? You know, it, it was valid, but you missed a key point. We didn't, we didn't finish, right? We didn't conclude the entire rite. Right? And so there's this, you know, this, this reality that, that the, the sacrifice has to be completed. Right? This is, it's the entire reason we're here. There's a sacrifice of our Lord. Whether we receive communion is actually kind of secondary. 
It's to worship him in the sacrifice, to be close to the sacrifice, to be close to the cross, to be at Calvary, to put ourselves there before the, the event that changed history and allows us to get into heaven. That's why we're there. Receiving communion is a secondary piece that if, if, you're, if you fasted and if, you've, if, you've, you know, if you're in the state of grace, uh, right, and, you know, if you meet the criteria, then go join yourself in Holy Communion. But the priority is to be there for the sacrifice. This is why Mother Church mandates that we attend Mass every Sunday, but only mandates that we receive communion once a year. The primary thing is to be there for the sacrifice, to be there for the offering that our Lord has made for us. So we have that distribution of communion, as we already mentioned. At the end, we kind of switch things up uh, as far as when we, when we dismiss people, when we bless people. We have the last gospel, so the praying of the first, the first uh, the prologue of St. John's gospel, part of the first chapter of St. John. Uh, various prayers for low mass are prescribed afterwards, prayers uh, Right, the, the three Hail Marys, Hail Holy Queen, prayer for the church, St. Michael, the three invocations of the Sacred Heart. And oftentimes those prayers or some of those prayers will be included in the Novus Ordo, but they're not required to be there. So, um, and you process out just the same. Right? So just right on out the back of the church or right into the sacristy and uh, make a good Thanksgiving to our blessed Lord. Again, there are a lot of differences. And for everything that I have said, there are a thousand things that have not been said. So I would encourage you to, uh, if you're interested in further, further investigation in these things, uh, I know there's probably a thousand different YouTube things that are out there and, and various other resources. I like books, so that's why I always get resources for books. I have those resources that are there. Some of them are introductions on, on, on all the symbolism contained in the Mass because it is jam-packed with theological richness, which many times we are completely, completely oblivious to. Uh, and so there are several books on that list that get really into the, into the riches of things. If you're really interested in the history of how, of how we got the Mass as we have it, there's several books on there. If you're interested in just liturgy in general, that's in there. There's a nice little, uh, the, the my, my book of the church's year. Theoretically, it's a kid's book, but I own it, and it's beautiful. Because... <laughs> It's got these great little little pictures. They're good for kids, but also really great for adults because we're basically just big kids sometimes. And so like this one, it has in August. So it tells you, it shows you pictures of various feasts throughout the month of August uh, in little picture form. And so it's just a neat little, a neat little guide to help. Uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's cool to have this, to show the kids, to show the grandkids, to read for yourself. Um, you know, pray with pray with the pictures of a kid's book. They're a good thing. Yeah, it's on it's on the list. My book of the church's year. Pretty small, good stuff. Um, again, plenty plenty of things on there. Introduction, introductory books, books that explain things in great detail. Um, and so there is uh, the mass is is a treasure chest, just waiting waiting to be cracked open. Uh, and and it's not you know again. We're talking about the Latin Mass. The Novus Ordo Mass has certainly great treasures too, but we're here talking about the Latin Mass specifically. Um, and just wanted to, to, open, uh, to open some of that to give you a little introductory starting point. Um, and in a second. So, um, yeah, so we'll go ahead and cap it off here. We're about to we're about to get rolling.
Uh, we've got mass in um, now, basically. Um, yeah, we got mass seven minutes ago. <laughs> Everybody in church is probably like, are they having mass today? Um, yeah, so, uh, so we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Obviously, we'll start as soon as we can when we get over there. Uh, but again, thank you, thank you, thank you for showing up today. Thank you for your interest here. And um, let's continue to, to implore our Lord that this gift that we have received, the treasures that have been passed down to us from generation to generation, can continue to, to persist, to endure, uh, that we can reap the fruits of this time, as well as many generations to come. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.